the Indigitech podcast, voice of the Aboriginal business ecosystem in Canada. Here's your host, Richard Perry. Okay, here we go. Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard, and this is Indigitech, and I am absolutely thrilled this week to introduce you to my guest, Victoria Labilwa, from, according to her, the center of the universe, Listagouge, Quebec. Hello, Victoria. <laughs> Hi, Richard. How are you? Very good. Nice to speak with you again. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to uh, speak. Well, I couldn't help it when I went on LinkedIn and I, I see all the different forums you're involved with and people connecting with you about this incredible rise in business entrepreneurship among First Nations, Inuit, and Métis across Canada. I thought, who better to have on the show than you? So awesome you could join Well, me. thank you. Uh, before we get into business, can we just spend a few minutes uh, talking about you and, and your personal background and where you're from? And maybe we should start with your reference to the center of the universe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and that is tongue-in-cheek. So I'm from Listiguch. I was born and raised here. It's a uh, Mi'kmaq community on the south shore of Gaspésie in what we call uh, Gaspégawagi, the 7th district of the Mi'kmaq. So again, born and raised, I grew up here. I left to go to university. I attended the University of New Brunswick, where I obtained both my degrees, a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's in Business Administration. And I worked away for a while, uh, gaining experience. I worked for the federal government for a number of years, living in Ottawa, and uh, moved back to the territory, uh, working at the band and regional level, always uh, in the Indigenous public service. And then I went out on my own when I was bit by the entrepreneurship bug. And I've been in business for myself um, ever since, so for a good number of years. Now, was there, when you were bitten by the bug, was there somebody in the community that acted as a mentor or something that gave you that spark? Actually, no. How I got into business was uh, was quite small. Uh, when I was living in Ontario, I started traveling around to powwows and uh, would enjoy spending my money with the vendors, getting jewelry, beaded earrings and T-shirts. And I thought to myself, I could do this. So um, invested 500 bucks and started a little T-shirt company with a little design and uh, enjoyed it. Enjoyed the whole experience and the learning that came with it about inventory and quality and sizing and sales and wearing all the hats for this small little t-shirt business. And I guess that was the start of it, the start of crazy things to come. <laughs> I'm guessing that little t-shirt company is no longer in business or did you sell it to someone? No, <laughs> that was the early 90s, believe it or not. <laughs> okay. And so, I mean, there's... Probably a long story between then and how you got involved in the construction business. Uh, tell me how right. that came about. I'll give you the Coles Notes version of how I became involved in uh, construction. So I own uh, several different companies now, and one of them actually is a T-shirt company, but that's another story. So going back to excavation and construction, um, across our territory here, the two main uh, industries would be forestry and fishery. And in terms of both, we, the Mi'kmaq, found ourselves spectators 
to the economy in the region. We, we would watch um, as the resource were extracted, and we weren't participating actively in either of those um, resource extraction, just watching it, so serving as bystanders. So when wind, in the, uh, wind energy came along to Gaspésie, I took a keen interest in it and uh, landed a visit on one of the wind parks. One of the first ones built out in our territory here is in Carleton, Quebec. It's about 45 minutes east. So I, I took a, I went on a site visit and did a, my own SWOT analysis, looking at what were opportunities there, looking at what did they put down to control the dust and the trenching that was going on to all the equipment in place. How could we be part of this new industry in the territory? And one thing I noticed was, of course, all the heavy equipment. And at the time, I didn't know the difference between a grader, a loader, an excavator. I just saw heavy equipment and lots of it. So I thought to myself, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start an excavation contracting company and bring the Mi'kmaq labor force to these projects that are happening across our territory off the reserve outside of the community. So it's not rocket science. I, I learned, obviously, the difference between uh, all of this uh, heavy equipment. I wrote my own business plan and in 2011 put my first piece of equipment on the project. And I, I can remember the date. It was April 26, 2011. And I was quite proud of myself that, look, it, it, it can be done. And in that first year... I had three pieces of equipment across different projects in the territory. So that's how I got involved in excavation. I didn't grow up uh, in a home of uh, entrepreneurs. We didn't talk business at the kitchen table. Uh, we certainly didn't own any uh, big assets of uh, heavy equipment, but I just did it. Yeah. Now, were you again wearing all the hats then, or were you in a position where you could employ some people to come in and work with you and help you? I was wearing all the hats, so doing the books and doing the research on the equipment and figuring out the maintenance schedule, very important when it comes to heavy equipment, uh, going in, introducing myself, doing sales, so right across, the only thing I didn't do was operate the equipment. I'm guessing, I mean, if you look at most construction sites today, there there are more women today than there were 20 years ago, but what was the response within the industry when they see this gal from Listaguj starting her own construction business? Mm, very good question. And obviously, I was concerned about it too because it, because it is uh, traditionally a male-dominated industry. I did not feel unwelcome, but I seen the raised eyebrows. But, I mean, that doesn't stop from going in. My I was referred to, uh, once people got to know me, I was referred to, La Belle Dame de Listigouche to my face, and, and I'm okay with that. Well, that that's <laughs> but positive. certainly, as you indicated, that there, there aren't a lot of women, uh, first of all, who own uh, construction companies, and we don't have a lot of women operators. But thankfully, that's changed over the last nine years since I've been in the business. I've, I've been able to meet other Indigenous women who own excavation companies from Kitigan Zibi, uh, from the James Bay Cree in the north. So we've, we have a little community of our own and certainly seeing more women operators going in and, and working in this field. 
great progress. Uh, as you know, there's a, there's a move afoot across Canada to move toward what's called a, a $100 billion indigenous, indigenous economy in Canada. Is that realistic based on your experience the past couple of years and this, I guess, renaissance we're seeing within Indigenous entrepreneurship? Is that 100 billion target doable? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Carolyn Hilton is a friend of mine. I met her through the speaking uh, tour last fall when we were at the uh, same event and she has put heart and soul into this organization. I think they're meeting actually this week. Can we do it? Yes. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of changing hearts and minds to get behind this and see the contributions that Indigenous people can make to gross domestic product across Canada. We're seeking equity. We're seeking our fair share. We want to be part of building our own economies. We hear a lot, the, the, the buzzword today is reconciliation, and I hear it in every context, and, and it's almost lost its meaning. What are we talking about? Are we just throwing around buzzwords here? Break down that word. Are we reconciling, or is this just another hug in in, in those terms? Reconciling means restoring, um, getting back. So when we look at the efforts for reconciliation, it's a two-way street. We, we have actions to take on our part as Indigenous entrepreneurs, but from the non-Indigenous lens, if we're going to achieve any type of reconciliation or actions to reconcile, it's, it's getting over that lack of knowledge of the Indigenous population across Canada, that it's not a homogeneous group across the Inuit, Métis, and Indigenous people, across the different territories in the different regions from, uh, we, we talked about uh, British Columbia and what's happening in that economy versus what's happening here in the East. There's a, a, a steep learning curve that has to happen here and understanding. And based on my experiences, and I don't want to delve into that in any depth, but what I've seen is that people fear what they don't understand. And clearly, I think Canadians do not understand uh, Indigenous people. I've, I've showed up in some offices to do sales and, and cold calls and been met with so much fear that I joke that they think they, they, they must think I brought my, uh, my, my loader with me to put up a blockade here. And this was in a national park. I was just reaching out to see if there was opportunities. So again, overcoming that, that fear, that lack of understanding, the, the missing piece of, of who we are as a people and, and what we're working towards, that's what has to happen. A good friend of mine, and I believe you may know her, uh, Rose Paul, who's been the Economic Development Officer at Buckingham Mi'kmaq Nation. Yes, and she was Candu's uh, Economic Developer of the Year last year. Rose is now the CEO of the Bayside Development Corporation, which is the business arm of Buckingham. And she described that very thing, where she'll go into a business meeting with people at, at a government level, and she can sense the fear and the uncomfortableness of people across the table until they get a chance to know her, hear her story, hear the community story. But there's an education that has to happen there. You're absolutely right. Right. The Indigenous Economic Development Board, uh, you've been a member for a little while there. Can you tell me what that's about, what its mission is? 
Sure. So I was appointed last June, so we've come one year. And it's a national board made up of business and community leaders from the Inuit and Métis and First Nations from all across Canada, all across the regions. And our mandate is to advise all uh, the the whole of the federal government on Indigenous economic development. So not just uh, Indigenous Services Canada or Crown Indigenous Relations, all of the departments. So it's it's a wide mandate. But if you look at, again, going back to the differences in regional economies, say in the East and West Coast, where we'd be more involved in fisheries, that would necessarily involve the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and what's happening in commercial fisheries and other departments, uh, industry science, economic development, Etc. So it's a great mandate, and and what a team that uh, they put together. I'm very humbled to be sitting at that table, to be listening, learning, but also sharing my voice, and sharing the voice from my experiences here, working boots on the ground in wind energy and locally, as well as regionally. I sit on a Mi'kmaq Mawiomi Business Corporation. So that's a regional business corporation of three Mi'kmaq communities in Gaspegawagi. So bringing that local, regional, and national voice across all levels, I, I think I've got uh, just a, a perfect job. There's a possibility or belief anyway that as Indigenous businesses grow, that could add anywhere from 27 to $30 billion to the national GDP. And that's something, it probably blows some people's minds thinking in terms of that magnitude. Right. When you talk about closing that productivity gap and put it in dollar figures that people understand, speaking that language, almost $28 billion a year to Canada's GDP, that does get people's attention. From a national point of view, you get a good sense of what the trends are and where business development might be going. And you've been involved with wind parks, uh, wind farms. Mm-hmm. What do you see happening in the next five to 10 years? Is there going to be more solar, more wind tech? Where are the opportunities? What I often hear from Indigenous communities is a different definition of entrepreneurship than your pure entrepreneurship, make money, bottom line it's it's more of a hybrid between social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship where i would put indigenous entrepreneurship and and i didn't scientifically invent this or define this i'm i'm sharing with you my thoughts and and how i approach entrepreneurship and and what i'm listening to so it's having a different definition of value so it's not it's not about the bottom line just about the bottom line it's about our people and bringing our people together into meaningful employment and meaningful jobs and building their own economies, but at the same time, not at the expense of the planet. So we're always talking about sustainability. So you mentioned wind and solar and tidal. What does it look like? I, I, I see that trend going in that direction, being responsible and defining Uh, our own definition of value and how we want to participate in the economy. Not, here's an opportunity, this is what you can do, 
have at it. It's yeah. it's not going to work that way. It's on our own our own terms with our own definitions. Well, what's neat too is that I see anyway as part of this renaissance, people are saying we're not seeking your permission. We're not waiting for the government's permission to be able to look at these new fields. If we see an opportunity, we're going to seize it. We're somehow going to figure it out and get there. I look at it from looking at our history and how our people, the land provided for us, it sustained us. So when I do an introduction, I do a traditional introduction in Mi'kmaq, I say, so I'm from Gesbegawagi territory. I, I belong to that territory. It has sustained me. I come from a place of abundance where there was enough to the, the history of colonization and now living in posted stamp size reserves uh, which are essentially living in, in, in poverty in our own homeland, despite being surrounded by a resource-rich territory. Am I going to ask permission? I, I, I came from a place of abundance to a place of poverty. I'm, I'm working my way out of it. I, I'm not asking permission. And I'm bringing the whole family with me, the whole nation, the whole community. We're, we're going to move along. That so reminds me of the, what's happened at uh, in Member Two in Cape Breton over the last twenty twenty five years, where they had been constrained like so many others by the Indian Act and other pieces of legislation. But Chief Terry Paul and others said, "If we're going to do this thing, we're have to go. You know, we're going to have to go our own way." And uh, they just forcefully went out there and made things happen. And you look at Member Two today, or bands like Osoyus, and the development just boggles the mind. Exactly, and. When people think of success stories, there are generally three communities that are listed. Member two, as you indicated, uh, down in Cape Breton in the territory of uh, Unamagi. Uh, we often hear about the successes of the Dakota Whitecap and, of course, Osoyus with uh, Chief Clarence Louie, who is the chair of the National Indigenous Economic Development Board. And Chief Terry Paul of Member 2 also sits on the board. So I'm sitting with some giants at this table. <laughs> but we also have to look at other less known success stories across the territory. And, and I would say the one in our backyard is the Mi'kmaq-owned wind park. So the regional board I sit on, the Mi'kmaq-Wayma Wyoming Business Corporation, manages a 150 megawatt wind park that was built by the Mi'kmaq for the Mi'kmaq. Planning, um, the planning elements that went into construction of the wind park gave the communities enough time to prepare their human resources. Okay, we looked at what type of trades are we going to need here? And in a four-year window, we were able to prepare and train our own people, our men and women, to be part of the construction and operation and maintenance of our own wind park. So that's another success story, but that's one of many. Uh, I could look at what's happening in um, Edmonston, in New Brunswick, and St. Mary's. There, there are tremendous success stories, but we have these three big communities that paved the way and, and led that path, and we're seeing a lot. And again, that's the educational piece we need. Yeah, that's a good point. I think after the interview, I'll have to follow up with you and get some names because uh, those are the types of businesses that we'd like to profile on this podcast. And uh, I'm trying to think whether Tobik First Nation is involved in any of the wind 
wind farm. Yes, I believe they are. I thought I read something about that. Yeah, I'll have to check into that. Even so, if you look at the tourism industry, I know that the ITAC, Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, I follow them on social media, just doing great things across all the provinces and territories in helping to contribute uh, to the economy and, and raising the Indigenous profile. I look at, um, I, I spoke earlier of, of uh, beaded jewelry and earrings. So I, again, social media follow a number of Indigenous women from across Canada that are taking their little home-based businesses and just growing these in leaps and bounds. Look at a company like Manitoba Mukluks. So that's an Indigenous-owned company that uh, designs and manufactures um moccasins, boots. I mean, I have a few pair. The name itself is like, wow, you've got a pair of Manitoba mukluks. <laughs> so they're doing great things. There's great things happening out there. Yeah. Again, we don't know enough about them and we don't celebrate our successes enough. Yeah, that's a good point. We should really credit the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business too, because they, they're doing a lot of work in trying to profile and get some buzz around a lot of their members who are doing some incredible things. And engage the non-Indigenous community to support Indigenous businesses as well. Yeah, fabulous. Uh, we've taken lots of your time. Just in closing, maybe um, anything big on the horizon, either in terms of your own business or some other work you're doing across the country? I think where we need to start looking is at intertribal trade. The current borders that exist between Canada, U.S., Mexico, those are not our borders. Their Indigenous people have lived for since time immemorial across Turtle Island, which is all of North America. What's happening in the U.S. and Mexico um, and Indigenous entrepreneurship? How do we create linkages? What does that look like? So that's something I think um, that deserves more study, and, and I've been looking into myself. I think there's been discussion, too, I think, with tribes in New Zealand that have expressed interest mm -hmm. in working with Canada. Yeah, I was actually invited down to New Zealand, uh, I think it was two or three years ago, to a Maori Women Entrepreneurship Conference. So the Maori are doing great things on a macro level with building their economy and participation in the economy. And I was invited to speak about my experiences in construction um, as a catalyst to encourage more Maori women to start their own businesses. So it was, a, it was a great experience to hear about their successes and again, share what's happening uh, here in, in North America with our successes and create those important linkages and to support each other. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And before we go, uh, what if people would like to connect with you? What's the best way for them to get in touch? Find me on LinkedIn. I'm wearing a, <laughs> I'm wearing a Superman t-shirt there. See me go. <laughs> I saw that. In fact, I had to mention that in my Facebook post this morning. You're wearing that, I'll say, Superwoman t-shirt for a very good reason. Thank you. I stand corrected. <laughs> you are absolutely right. My cape was at the dry cleaners. I had to wear the t-shirt. Victoria, thank you. Walaliuk for your very generous time. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day. The Indigitech Podcast. Voice of the Aboriginal business ecosystem in Canada. 